Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Mel. I'm Helen. And I'm Janet. Today, we are outraged at the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many more unarmed Black people whose names are not currently in the news. We are outraged at the persistence of police brutality, at the treatment of protesters, at white privilege, at systemic racism, at our president. We are donating, emailing representatives, using our voice amongst our spheres of influence, and encouraging the people we know to do the same. This past week, we went on a media outage on Asian Boss Girl, holding back content to focus on the Black Lives Matter movement. To us, nothing is more important than life itself. And when our Black and Brown brothers and sisters have lost too many of their lives to the injustices built into America's systems, we need to pause and reflect on how we as Asian Americans can do our part to help. To provide a brief overview, on May 25th of this year, George Floyd, an African-American man, died on the streets of Minneapolis after a police officer knelt on his neck for eight minutes, even after saying, I can't breathe. Last week, an autopsy confirmed this was a homicide. And since George Floyd's death, protesters have taken to the streets, re-energizing the Black Lives Matter movement that began six years ago. There's been peaceful rallies and marches, there's been looting and violence, there's even been military presence and the glorification of violence by our president. In order to deepen our understanding of what's happening today, it's important to know our history. Many of us in our history classes learned about slavery and the civil rights movement, so instead of recounting all of that, I wanted to point out the civil rights movement that one basic civil rights for African Americans only really occurred 50 years ago. So it's not as far back in history as we might think, and it's reasonable to understand how a lot of the events and systems from that period affect current day events. History also wasn't a clear cut, you know, you're a slave and then now suddenly you're a free person. And, oh, you don't have basic rights, we've seen the error of our ways, and now you do. There were points of progress marred by systemic setbacks, economic and social incentives for the continual disadvantage of African American people. I think most of our listeners today would identify with being anti-racist, but not fully understand how it is still integrated in our current social systems. Specifically, there's a complex linking between slavery and the criminal justice system that's largely based on economic reasons. Um, And there's actually a movie that the three of us all watched. Uh, It's called 13th on Netflix, and it details this pretty pretty well. We would definitely recommend that you guys check that out. Uh, But basically, it talks about how the 13th Amendment abolished slavery as a system, but there was a loophole where criminals were an exception and could still be detained and used for labor. So when slavery was abolished and the Civil War ended, the economy was ruined by a large labor force that was now taken away. 
And so the government began to massively arrest African-Americans for illegitimate reasons like loitering uh, because they needed the labor force to fix the economy. And the movie is all about how the system of slavery went away, but essentially evolved into the criminal system that we have today. And, and how there was continual economic dependence on the labor force provided by criminals and thus motivation for white political elite and business establishments to sustain this negative and criminal image of the black man. Secondly, the movie also discusses the more recent phenomenon of mass incarceration, which started from the Reagan administration and went all the way through to Bill Clinton's administration, where there was a creation on a war on drugs and worsening the image of criminals, all for political power play. All of this resulted in putting uh, in place quotas for police to hit on arrests, which in turn resulted in a massive spike in the rate of imprisonment, specifically targeting young African-American men in disadvantaged neighborhoods. There's a fact that states that despite similar rates of drug use, black people are nearly four times as likely to be arrested for marijuana use, and black males are often more given longer sentences for crimes than their white peers. All of this to say that our current social systems are rooted in and evolved from systems largely to serve a white population and that did not see or treat people equally. And as much as we have progressed, there are traces of inequality in that system that African-American people in particular, given the dynamic of slavery, are disadvantaged from. Given current events, we've also heard um, the popularization of the term institutional racism or systemic racism. We want to just kind of detail about how that phenomenon is really about how white superiority is present in everyday thinking at a systems level. And it's often the default. So even though someone might not see themselves as racist, they can still benefit from systems that privilege white faces and voices. And that's seen in systems of education, government, and the media, which often celebrates and rewards some cultures over others. A prime example would be, you know, a Harvard study found that job candidates were more likely to get an interview when they whitened their names. Since we are the Asian Boss Girl podcast, we wanted to take a quick moment to touch a bit on where the histories of Asian and Black communities in America intersect. Now, we want people to know that this isn't to detract from the fight for Black lives. As Asian Americans, our internal work needs to include knowing where we came from, how history has shaped the views of our grandparents and parents and trickled down to us, and subsequently, how we can use our power and voices to shift the present and write a better future and a better history for future generations. Obviously, we've tried to summarize decades of history into 10 minutes as best as we can and have definitely left huge chunks out of this, so please continue to read up on your own. Starting with the 1960s, during the civil rights movement, while Black Americans fought for basic civil rights, several Asian Americans stood alongside the Black community as allies to their fight, one of which was Yuri Kochiyama. Many of the early ideals of rejection of assimilation in the Asian American community actually came from ideologies of Malcolm X and the Black Power Movement. In 1968, there was the San Francisco State Strike, which coalesced Black, Latino, Native American, and Asian Americans in a five-month strike to fight for open admissions and the establishment of an ethnic studies department. So it was during this time and during the civil rights movement that Asians started to really show up and show their support with true activism, fighting not just for naturalization and property rights, but to be Americans. In 1992, there were the LA riots, which was a result of police brutality on Rodney King. And although the riots happened throughout LA, it tore apart Koreatown, which was driven by growing violence and racial tensions between Black and Asians. In 1991, a Korean shop owner killed Natasha Harlins for questionably stealing a bottle of orange juice, 
which you may or may not have heard a lot of in Tupac's songs. But all of this, whether it's the positivity of standing alongside the civil rights movement or the deep tensions leading to increased anti-blackness in our community, it's important to know how this all has shaped our current views of Asian and black relations. Throughout the history that you mentioned, Helen, ever since the 1950s, American government has been trying to pit oppressed communities and communities of color against each other for centuries. And now history is repeating itself. In 1966, the term minor minority was coined in a New York Times article entitled Success Story, Japanese American Style. This article highlighted that through hard work, Asian Americans were capable of overcoming discrimination to achieve success. The image of the hardworking Asian became an extremely convenient way to deny the demands of African Americans and to undermine the positive relations between ethnic groups. As historian Ellen Wu described in her book, The Color of Success, both liberal and conservative politicians pumped out the image of Asian Americans as a way to shift the blame for black poverty. If Asians could find success within the system, politicians asked, why couldn't African Americans? And the model minority myth was very harmful in creating this sweeping generalization of what Asian Americans are and how we should behave. On one end, you have a figure like Toi Lin Goon, who was a Chinese-American widow named Mother of the Year in 1952. She ran her family's laundry business, her husband served in and died in World War II, and all her kids went to Ivy League schools. Then you have examples like Tu Tao, who stood by and did nothing in the murder of George Floyd. He stood there and turned a blind eye in order to protect a white man to take down a black man. And if this doesn't encapsulate the epitome of the model minority myth and everything wrong with it, pitting Asians against other minority groups to be silent and subservient in the quest for a white adjacency, I don't know how people can say the model minority myth is a good thing. It takes away from the complexities of Asian American lives like Toy Lin Goons and leads to shitty ass people like Tu Tao. In addition to sharing some historical context, we at Asian Boss Girl are working to further unpack our own biases and the biases within our communities. And for us, that starts with conversations with our families. So ladies, are there any significant memories or discussions that you've had with your parents or family about race? And if so, what is typically said? Yeah, I don't think I had really, you know, um, direct conversations about race yet, but I think there's always like subtle comments made about, you know, color. And I do think in the Asian culture, lighter skin is viewed as like a more valuable than darker skin. Because I remember growing up, like I see a lot of whitening creams and all this stuff. And I do see how that stems from kind of like all this stuff we talked about, about the history. And but I also remember that um, when my little cousin was born, you know, obviously, we were born with more of a fair complexion. But my cousin, when he was born, he had a darker complexion. And my grandma made a comment in Taiwanese saying, oh, he's a black person. And you could tell she was saying it in a way that wasn't necessarily positive. And so it's kind of like, oh, like, why is that a thing? But then when you're younger, you kind of don't think much about it, you know, because I think sometimes these subtle comments that aren't directly – she wasn't intentionally being racist. It kind of was. As I'm questioning my biases, I'm realizing how really um, impactful – the comments made by our, you know, our parents and grandparents really affect, you know, current day. Mm-hmm. So you mean kind of like how statements that they make that are not deliberately outright racist, but that will still prioritize white kind of characteristics, and then that that might subconsciously influence the way you think about darker skin mm-hmm. or things like that in a negative light. That's a good point. Yeah, exactly. But Helen, how about you? Um, usually. When I call my mom, it's a lot of uh, surface level conversations. So it would be like, what did you eat today? Or how was your day? Or what did you do? 
And yesterday I called my mom and I asked her what she thought about everything that was going on. Um, I remember back when I was, I think it was in high school, there was this one moment when she said something that I thought was super racist. And I don't remember exactly what it was at the time, but it was something like, oh, it must be because he's black for something that was probably horrendous that happened. And I looked at her and I said, like, mom, you can't say that. I remember being at the brink of tears because I didn't want to have a mom that felt like she could say things like that out loud. And since then, since that encounter, she's never said anything racist ever again. And fast forward to yesterday, she said that her stance on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was that everything that they stood for is correct. They have a right to protest. They have a right to be angry. But people, both black and white, should not be looting and running amok. And to be honest, I was very proud and happy to hear that coming out of her Mm -hmm. mouth. I think I was prepared for racist comments because we never had a conversation about race until yesterday, actually. Mm. So when she said she was in solidarity, I just wanted to like hug her. And I started telling her like, oh, I went to the protest. And then she just started. She she was so angry. She's like, how dare you put yourself in trouble and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's a different story. But she also shared with me the story about how when her and my dad first came to the U.S. in the 1980s, they were poor. They bought the super old used car that ended up dying on the highway in the middle of winter in Boston. And they stood there waiting for help. And there were no cell phones back then either. They were watching for like several minutes as people drove by, all white people. And the only person that stopped to help them was a black man who didn't ask for any money or favors. And I think it's because of this act of kindness that my parents have been so empathetic towards the Black community, whether it's at work or people they encounter. Mm. And if I hadn't opened up that dialogue to ask them that question yesterday, I would have never known that story, which now makes so much sense of why throughout my whole life, I can only remember that one real like racist comment that you know that my mom had made Mm -hmm. i will say though that their friends and the older asian generation there's still casual racism in their own echo chambers like when they say don't date black people don't go to your black friend's neighborhood and i do feel guilt in admitting this but it almost feels like it became background noise kind of like for you too Mm -hmm. mel right when your Mm -hmm. grandma made that comment about your cousin because it's it's almost like background noise and we just become numb Mm -hmm. to it what about for you janet um, I'm trying to think back to any conversations I might have had with my parents when it came to like race. And I think it starts more like I do recall my parents always making sure that my sister and I always understood that we were different and that we were Chinese and that there are different types of cultures of people. So they're very clear about that. And in fact, they more embraced it as like a positive thing. It was never seen as like one race is better or less than. And I think because they spent a lot of their adult years in the U.S. coming here for graduate school, it was very much that type of American thinking that everyone is equal and like you don't see colors in skin, right? So it's like hypothetically, you're supposed to see everyone equally. But I know from very early memories of interactions with my grandparents that there is embedded um, a certain level of racism within Chinese culture or like Mm anti-blackness that isn't direct and is very nuanced. And so I would say probably, I can't think of specific experiences, but I remember my parents directly saying to me things like, you know, everyone's culture is different and unique and never having a negative like outright racist comment, but that it's nuanced in some of the preferences, right? Like in, in some of the statements. Yeah. And I think it's important to have this type of discourse about how anti-blackness plays a role in our upbringings and our lives. Mm-hmm. We all mentioned that, you know, there's these sort of anti-black sentiments from our parents in one form or, or another, whether or not we like to admit it. 
Um, and I know it's sort of a broad stroke to say that our generation is a lot more quote unquote woke and understanding of the struggles of different races than our parents' generations. But our parents' generations and their thoughts and ideals have trickled down to us. And so that brings us to the question of where do you think this anti-Black sentiment actually stems from in our culture? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly good question. And as I was answering the previous question, I was thinking like, what are some instances of the nuanced you know, things? And it was never that they saw black people as bad but I think it was more sometimes out of a reaction of like fear because of something they didn't quite understand right and I think that might be because everything that we've talked about with systemic racism that results in this image of black people as being dangerous and as the black male particularly um, and, and correlating them so much with violence I think that our parents seeing that still you know like are are influenced by the media as well and probably few of them having direct relationships with black people to really be able to understand the reality of it. So I think in some instances, the sense of anti-blackness in Asian culture probably just comes from the systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, and I think when you mentioned earlier about how media drives perception, I 100% agree with that statement because, so I was talking to my little brother about, you know, everything that's going on. And he told me a story about how, I think a few years ago, he was in Taiwan and, you know, the cab driver there was trying to make conversation with him. And he said to my brother saying, I can't believe you guys elected a black president. And it was like scoffing at us. And my brother and I were talking about it. We're like, what the fuck? Like, it shows a lack of education people in the Asian countries have of America. Because, like, you know, obviously us as American citizens, we know how educated and how qualified Obama was to be our president. But... I think back about growing up in Taiwan sometimes, like all on, t on TV, there's channels just for Hollywood movies and films, and they were very dated. So all the things they saw in movies were black men as criminals, as these like bad people. And that's what they think and perceive as black people to be in Asia when that's not the case. So it really does see the power. Like I see, I saw the power of Hollywood and how also keep in mind that there's so much dollars in Hollywood, right? And these movies mm -hmm. get played internationally. And so I think when we talk about representation, representation is needed across all boards for race so people can understand the true reality of what it's like to be, you know, black. Yeah. It's so hard to have these discussions because I think even as you're mentioning all of that, Mel, I'm like, oh, I could see, I could totally see my aunt or uncle like saying something like that too. And we feel guilt because we are associated with mm -hmm. them through, you know, just the things in the, in the ideas that they have. And I think the step forward from here is one, talking to your parents about it and your family about it and telling them how it makes you feel really uncomfortable. I saw on Next Shark, they put out a post with both uh, English and Chinese characters to just start the dialogue with your parents mm -hmm. if it's too hard to start it yourself. So that's, that's a really good resource to have to just start the dialogue. And two, acknowledging perhaps your guilt in all of this, but also not discounting sort of your own sufferings. I don't think we should fault our parents too hard for anti-Black sentiments because especially if they're immigrants, they came into this, like Janet mentioned, this predetermined system of painting black people as criminals. And we need to help them unlearn racism. Mm -hmm. We might not get through to them or to our parents or to our aunts and uncles or whoever on the first try, but I think that's our work that we just got to keep trying and be patient um, and know that our parents, they are also evolving and, and learning just like, just like we are. Skillshare is a sponsor of today's episode of Asian Boss Girl. We know our listeners are often busy balancing work, school, or side projects. As always, we hope you are shelving out time for yourself and developing your own interests. 
Skillshare is a great resource that offers classes designed for real life, so you can move your creative journey forward without putting life on hold. You can learn and grow with short classes that fit your busy routine. With a lot of us spending more time at home, the desire to spruce up your place is high on people's minds. For me, I find that when my living spaces are decorated to my aesthetic, I'm more happier and productive. With classes like Style Your Space and Happy Houseplant, I'm able to jumpstart on decorating without feeling overwhelmed. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. Skillshare is also incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ABG and get two free months of premium membership. That's right. Skillshare is offering Asian Boss Girl listeners two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes. Head to Skillshare.com ABG. Now that we have all been staying at home and trips to the grocery store are proving to be quite challenging, delivery and subscription services have been pretty clutch. In addition to meals, vitamins, and skincare products, we've also been experimenting with having our hair care items delivered to our door with Function of Beauty. They formulate every bottle based on our unique hair types and hair goals. They gather your information through a quiz and you can customize with the fragrance and color. The last part, which we had a lot of fun with, was adding your name to be printed on the bottle. So we went with our nicknames for each other. Woo-woo, Mel Mel, and Jan Jan. Function of Beauty is also vegan, cruelty-free, and they never use sulfites, parabens, phthalates, mineral oils, or any other harmful ingredients. They are offering our listeners a savings of 20% on your first purchase. Go to functionofbeauty.com ABG to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com ABG to let them know that we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com ABG. Alright ladies, I do want to check in on how you guys are feeling. I know obviously it feels like everyone is mentally and emotionally um, trying to process what's going on lately, but um, yeah, but how are you both feeling? I am feeling, I am feeling angry. I am feeling sad. Um, I am feeling torn and conflicted and mentally drained and exhausted, um, but also uplifted and energized and wanting to educate myself to become a better ally. I think like a lot of us, there was an immense amount of catching up to do of trying to like relearn our modern history class and really trying to understand why our system is so fucked up. Um, I tried reflecting on why I feel so passionately about the Black Lives Matter movement uh, these past few weeks. And I think I've narrowed it down to a few points. One, it makes no sense for a human being in America to feel scared to go on a jog or wear a hoodie or go bird watching or worry about getting shot in her own home by cops. I can't even imagine what that feels like. And if we have the power to sort of vote that out, we need to put that into action and do that. And that's like a, a big sort of number one of why I am feeling so angry and like feeling this this lump in my throat when I'm even like talking about this. Two, growing up in Boston, there were different neighborhoods that were known for gun and gang violence. In college, I volunteered in the city called uh, Roxbury at one of the middle schools, mentoring the kids there. And a number of them shared with me how they saw their cousin get shot on their porch or one of the kids' dads died from gun violence. And one of my best friends from elementary school who was black, she was shot by a stray bullet while celebrating at a parade through Dorchester. And I remember being very empathetic to hearing all of this, but also helpless in what I could do. It's almost like I wasn't surprised. And I think looking back, I hate that that was and is the norm for black Americans and that 
we've kind of become complacent or or numb to it. So it's a lot of like unlearning what's objectively wrong and trying to relearn these a deeper compassion to genuinely want to take action to make things right. And thirdly, I think um, a part of this movement is calling out white supremacy and casual racism. For me, I am just so sick of hearing people say, I don't see color or I'm good because I have a black friend. It's like, no, having attended Boston College, which is a Catholic predominantly white school or my old job where there's a clear racial hierarchy, I feel like I've gone through a lot of microaggressions and have been guilty of code switching and giving that reluctant smile to like casual racist comments. And I did that because I got tired of having to explain everything. And to see this movement call white people out on their privilege is like so satisfying. And I know this third point is more for selfish reasons, but it's so nice to see accountability, you know, yeah. where it's due. And yesterday, Jan and I went to the protest at City Hall in downtown. And it took a lot of planning because Philip has a cafe that he still needs to run and we're still in the pandemic with COVID. So he volunteered to sleep at his office for me to make it to the protest. And um, Janet and I are going to go get tested tomorrow to make sure we're okay. But mm. honestly, I really, really appreciated him for doing that for me because I really wanted to be out there feeling the power of the movement and the energy and the anger that I think I was feeling myself. And I also wanted to be out there to show that Asian people care also. But all of that said, it's like a whole just storm of emotions. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, I think there's also some difficulty to, to it, too, because people are it almost feels like when you have an emotion, people are kind of shooting it down like, oh, why does your, why do your feelings matter? But mm -hmm. I think it's important for us to be in good mental states so that we can show up and learn how to be you know, better allies and, and teach and learn and unlearn things and show up. So let's not also discount that it's important to be just mentally OK through all of this. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that, Helen. And I think you're, what you explained in the opening of like, it's like, hey, how are you feeling? And it's just like, how, what am I not feeling, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I definitely, yeah, I, it's weird because it's like only what, two months ago, I, I remember having a very similar plethora of emotions with all of this onset of COVID. And I think mm -hmm. for Helen, it's like the predominant like you have all these this you know like swirl of emotions and and a lot of it is it comes out in this kind of like passion anger and I feel like I mean not like angry angry but you know it's like a energized kind of passion and yeah. for me I'm kind of the person that when I go through something like this I I get sad I get mm -hmm. really really sad and I get drained and I and I think for me this has become something that has been hard for me to really process because I am someone who at the core believes in the good in all people. And I always try to see situations from all sides and generally not be kind of like absolute. It's hard for me to rectify how to have compassion in instances like this where it's people in various roles of power directly and indirectly hurting people. And there's looting and there's rioting and deliberate causing of suffering. And the way that I've kind of started to be able to make sense out of this in my mind is I'm separating the person from the behavior. So I want to separate a person's humanity and their innate value from the bad things they do. You know, like good people can do bad things. And understand that I can still have compassion and love for an individual, even if it is that policeman who's causing suffering, to see his actions coming from a place of pain himself or some other, some other thing, while also vehemently not condoning his behavior and being disgusted by his actions. And oftentimes there's a way to think about like, kind of like tough love, right? Like maybe wishing discipline and punishment on someone is actually an expression of love for them. The way that when a child does something incorrectly, a parent doesn't think the child is bad, but they teach them that your behavior is bad. 
And secondly, I completely recognize that this view of the world of being able to, or of believing in the goodness of mankind comes from a place of privilege. And it's mm-hmm. a result of me and my experiences, right? And I think that as I'm going through this process of being able to recognize my own privilege, I'm experiencing feelings of guilt, of confusion, maybe sometimes self, self-loathing. And I think there's probably a huge grouping of people who are starting to realize their own biases and their own privilege that are also going to be going through this deeply emotionally complex experience. And also to see brokenness in the system, right? Mm-hmm. To see a system that you put trust in, that you follow, and that you enforce and benefited from. So I just hope that people don't feel overwhelmed and that they understand that, the, like Helen, like you said, the first step is you have to be well yourself. So first show yourself compassion and know that when you're going to try to be an ally or to do anything, you're going to mess up. You'll say the wrong things, but that's okay. And that's part of the process. It's part of the process of unlearning is making mistakes. You know, when I think about kind of similar to Helen, like why, why do I feel so moved by this? I ask myself the same question because usually I'm honestly, I was quite surprised that I was so affected. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about how like social and political stances, there's a component that's like your civic duty in your relationship with the external world but there's also a piece of of this that's incredibly personal and sacred it's almost like religion right like it touches into your personal value system i think some of this is just personal timing for me that maybe it's just with all the world events that are happening it's taken me a while to arrive at a place where i'm discovering my own social and political stance on certain things um, and then also with you know the rush of the media what media portrays does affect me emotionally and my emotions affect kind of you know the actions that i want to take mm-hmm. and at the end of the day this particular instance i think it comes down to a matter of human rights and a matter of principle like i believe and i value fairness and equality and um, I value peace. And I think that the absence of justice is an absence of peace. Um, and also this was a clear misuse of power. And I think as someone who has bought into a system and created a social pact with society that I'm going to follow your rules and you know, policemen are going to protect me, I feel violated in that sense too. Mm-hmm. And if you dig deeper and realize that it is a systemic problem, um, I think Helen, you said this in like a past episode where like you really don't like broken systems. And mm-hmm. I very mm-hmm. much relate to that is like, you see suffering and when you can see that this suffering is the direct relationship to to a system that is wrong, that's like there's a light there that, okay, then now there's an opportunity to fix it. Mm-hmm. And because it's a system that I bought into, I also feel personally tied and responsible to helping to fix it. Mm. So it's a combination of feeling sad, but then also really feeling empowered. And at the end of the day, knowing that it's going to be a long, arduous battle, but like it feels like the right thing to do. How about you, Mel? How are you? First of all, I agree with you with what you said. And I think all of us are feeling like this, like a mixing pot of emotions. But I think for me, my first initial reaction is I felt afraid. I'm not the type to get angry, not to get sad. Right? I get, I get scared. But I also, I will acknowledge that my fear is also like a privilege to be afraid in a sense. It's mm-hmm. just like I think when you're afraid, you feel paralyzed. And I think my understanding of my parent, like being feeling paralyzed, cause comes from growing up in privilege where I don't have to be fearful for my life on a constant basis like you know the black community but yeah my first reaction was afraid and honestly I was heartbroken after seeing everything unfold and honestly um you know this is the first time I really dug deeper into understanding the current events and to read into what was happening you know I read about Amy Cooper and then George Floyd but what really sparked wanting to know more is actually my little brother you know he texted me about you know tackling anti-blackness in our family and it just really set in for me and I started watching more videos of people protesting and then I really saw, you know, the generations of pain. I was reading and understanding the flaws that we have in our American systems that allow for this unfairness with the black community. 
and how this seeped into this like false perception you know of black people within our parents and grandparents generation and I really started questioning my privilege you know I'll be very transparent with you you guys both know I'm just not the type to be very vocal and share my political opinions um, because again I'm afraid to be wrong and Mm -hmm. I'm really not confrontational I know this also comes from my privilege but I was afraid to even talk about this on the podcast but I think the core of it I'm asking myself why am I afraid and it comes back to like the core of being Asian American I think a lot of us are afraid to ruffle feathers aka shake the system and really voice our opinion you know obviously being on social media I feel this innate pressure you know to post just to say something which pretty much is you know learn from you both is performative activism which is activism done to increase one's social capital rather than because of one's devotion to a cause, and it's often associated with surface-level activism. You know, and I had a lot of conversations about this with some friends who also felt guilt for not posting. And the thing I, I learned the most is, like, you know, don't force someone to find their voice when they're not ready to yet. Mm-hmm. I think you'll push them into performative, performative activism, and that is not genuine to them nor to you. Mm-hmm. But again, I think at, at the end of this, even though I was afraid at first and all this stuff, I also asked myself, why do I, why do I feel a certain way? And why do I feel strongly about everything? And I think at the end of it, I truly believe in allyship. And I do think allyship is a long-term goal. And, you know, after my conversation with my little brother and I read more, I truly want to be a stronger ally. And for me, you know, again, why does this matter? I think at the core of it, it feels like a fight for humanity and a basic rights we have as an American. And I think seeing that being stripped away from a group of people, it just feels like this is really unfair and this is really wrong. Uh, my journey with activism starts with step one, which is education. And, you know, that's deconstructing my bias, you know, constantly educating myself. And that results in me, you know, directly donating and making sure I vote in the elections. And, dude, I'm going to be honest. You guys know this. I started voting literally last year, but I saw how directly the impact of voting can really benefit our society right now and help people. For me, it's after you educate yourself, share what you're learning with others so they can learn as well. I think you'll surprise yourself with how active you actually want to be when you're equipped with knowledge. And mm-hmm. so for me, I think at the end of the day is to become a stronger ally in all this because it's about it's a, it's a basic human need and human right at this point for me. Yeah, I'm Mel, I've seen you through this journey of using your voice. I mean, you are our social media chair also. So I know that there is a lot going on in terms of people DMing and saying like, why aren't you talking mm-hmm. out about this? And yeah, I mean, sometimes it takes a little bit just to collect our thoughts and make sure that we are educated before we say something. I think a lot of people are feeling sort of the same things as you're feeling right now, where you're a little scared. You feel like you're worried about being silenced, but the steps that you are taking, I think is a very good example for our listeners out there who, who might be afraid as well. Yeah. And I think everything you said about expressing the fear of being wrong is very, like, I relate to that as well in, mm-hmm. in kind of trying to to understand my relationship with politics. And I think a lot of Asian American people as well, because they don't like making mistakes, right? You're, you're trying to be well-studied and well-informed. But the point is that the world moves so quickly and things change so much that you're going to make mistakes. So mm-hmm. you have to start accepting that and that's okay. And it's part of the process. Yeah. I think I saw something I posted on Instagram that I felt was really encouraging. I hope others could feel this way. But like, you know, people are saying some are posting on social media, some are protesting in the streets, some are donating silently, and some are educating themselves. Just keep your foot on the gas. Mm. And so the main thing I took away from what's going on right now is I do think for us to be stronger allies, don't do nothing. Yeah. I think it all begins in taking action and the ways you feel comfortable to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like again, like the person said, just keep your foot on the gas. Yeah. And that looks different for everyone. And that's totally okay. For sure.
Selling merchandise is a great way to connect your audience across the globe. Especially during this time of staying at home, what better way to connect with your audience than to start an online store? We've been using ShipStation to help manage and ship out the orders. No matter what you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from any device, even your cell phone. And ShipStation works with all of the major carriers like USPS, FedEx, UPS, and even Amazon Fulfillment. You can compare and choose the best shipping prices and solutions for you and your customer. And right now, Asian Boss Girl listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use offer code ABG. Make sure your business is ready to meet the demands of delivery culture. Get started at ShipStation.com today. Click on the microphone at the top of the ShipStation homepage and type in ABG. That's ShipStation.com, then enter offer code ABG. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. All right, so what can we do? What we can do is become an ally. And what is an ally? An ally is someone who is not a member of an underrepresented group, but who takes action to support that group. And it's up to people who hold positions of privilege to be active allies to those with less access and take responsibility for making changes that will help others be successful. And what does an ally do? And this is from GuideToAllyship.com. Take on the struggle as your own. Stand up even when you feel scared. Transfer the benefits of your privilege to those who lack it. And acknowledge that while you too feel pain, the conversation actually is not about you. And why are allies necessary? Because an ally might have more privilege and they are powerful voices alongside the oppressed. Anyone who has the potential to be an ally and allies recognize that though they are not part of the oppressed group, they support, they make a concerted effort to better understand the struggle every single day. So from the same guide, uh, guide to allyship.com, they have a couple of helpful tips on things to do. Yes. Um, The first one is do be open to listening. Do be aware of your implicit biases. Do your research to learn more about the history of the struggle in which you are participating and do the inner work to figure out a way to acknowledge how you participate in oppressive systems. Also do the outer work and figure out how to change the oppressive systems. Do learn how to listen and accept criticism with grace, even if it's uncomfortable. And it's the same for if you're going to give criticism, also do it with compassion and grace. There are other great resources, you know, out there for us to learn more about what's going on from, you know, consuming books, movies, and podcasts and articles. You know, there's a great article from the Washington Post titled The Real Reason Americans Stop Spitting on Asian Americans and Started Praising Them. So know your history and understand the model minority myth and its implications not only on the Asian community, but on the black community as well. 
Also, we know all of you are on Netflix right now. Some of the shows that we have consumed are, we mentioned earlier, The 13th, talking about the history of prisons and how incredibly unbalanced and unjust the system has been towards Black people, like mass incarceration, interest from lobbyists and big corporations, forcing the innocent and poor to admit guilt, amongst other crazy revelations about our criminal justice system and how fucked up it is. When They See Us is another really good one. It's a true story about the Central Park Five who were unjustly and almost forcibly charged for an assault of a jogger in Central Park. This one is really sad, but it's our reality as well. Dear White People is another one that we would highly recommend for the intelligent conversations and banter on social justice and race. Also, there are various podcasts to listen to, like 1619, Code Switch, and About Race. We can also engage through donations. There are Minnesota-based organizations that need our money, like the Minnesota Freedom Fund, Reclaim the Block, and Black Visions Collective. You can also donate to NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and that is a civil rights organization based in the United States, or Black Lives Matter, which is an international human rights movement. And seek out and support Black-owned businesses, because history has showed us that power is where the money's at. Yes, another thing you guys can do is sign petitions. Go to act.colorofchange.org and change.org. And vote. Definitely in November on Election Day, but also at your local ballots. It's amazing how much we overlook the local vote, but these votes can have an impact on criminal justice reform, economic injustice, human rights, access to health care, quality of education, etc. So yes, voting is a longer-term solution, but we need to bring out the energy that we're feeling now to the ballots as well. Here at ABG, we want to do all that we can to share resources and ways for us to become better allies with the Black community. Share with us what you are doing within your own spheres of influence in order to create long-term change beyond the social media hype. Tag us on RIG at Asian Boss Girl with your stories, the difficult conversations you may be having, the resources you're using, and anything else that can be beneficial to the ABG community. The more discourse we can have on this, the stronger we can be together. And for anyone out there who's seeking a professional to speak to during this time, BetterHelp has been a resource for online counseling service that we have been using and fully supportive of. ABG listeners get 10% off their first month, so you can find the link in our show notes. You can find us on all of the podcasting platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review at Asian Boss Girl. Let's do our part in standing in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and continue to have discussions beyond this podcast. Take care, everyone, and thanks for listening.